We're coming now to the seventh of the seven foundations of Messianic Jewish worship. And this uh, seventh foundation is the Messiah himself. Notice the title, The Good News of Messiah, Getting Beyond Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. That may sound her- heretical. But we, I want you to understand, and uh, I pray that God will help us to understand, that we've got the Messiah in like tiny little kitschy little boxes. Uh, we talk about being Messianic Jews, but I think that we, 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 not you, we, all of us, not just here, but the whole movement, I think that we underestimate the dimensions of who Yeshua is and what are the implications of what he has done and will do. We turn our faith into a Good Friday, absolutely true. For many Messianic Jews, when they think of Yeshua, they think, well, he's the one who died for my sins. That's Good Friday. That's, that's the whole message for them. That's, that's only the beginning. It's, it's not even the beginning, it's the middle. But it's not the end. So today I want to give you, I, I want to give us, I want God to give to us eyes to see. You know, Paul says he wants the Ephesians to know the breadth of, of, of all of this. And that's what I'm praying that God will increase for us because it's a great tragedy that the greatest reality, redemptive reality, in all creation is reduced to bumper stickers. This is a tragedy. So join me in a word of prayer. I remember Paul saying, Father, who is sufficient for these things? But our sufficiency is of Messiah. God, you know, these people know, and I've acknowledged to you that I know I'm not sufficient for these things. So, please touch this mind, touch our ears and our minds and our understandings. Revive the dead, strengthen the downcast, correct the presumptuous, teach us your ways. Come, Spirit of God, whom Yeshua sent into the world to begin the age to come, may be richly present here, arresting us and changing us for your pleasure. We ask in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, who rose from the dead, who ascended to your right hand, who is coming again to bring all the nations and all things visible and invisible subject to his will in the end turn everything over to you. We pray in the name of this name which is above every name. Amen. Amen. Please continue, Sean. We've looked at seven foundations of Messianic Jewish worship. And we've got these, as I've told you, from the third chapter of the book of Ezra. It's about the Jewish people going back to the land 
under the edict of a nice Persian named Cyrus, or Koresh, gives the order that they can go back to the land and rebuild the temple. This is the first temple was destroyed, 586-587 BCE. Now, 536 or so, 535-536, around that time, 5,000 people. And we have extracted from their practice of what they felt was intrinsic to the worship of Israel, we've taken that for ourselves. And we've also added the teachings of two of the prophets whom God sent to the people of Israel at that time because the work was going slowly. People meant well, but they weren't getting on with it. So he sent Haggai and he sent Zechariah to inspire and urge the people to continue the work. And out of those two prophets, we got our last two points. So here are the seven points. You can see them before you. The first thing they did is they built the altar because they're not just going back to build a building. They're not going back to restore services exactly. They're going back to worship God. And so the first thing they do is they build the altar, the primacy of, on the very base of the first temple's altar, which had been destroyed. And this reminds us that Messianic Jewish worship should have continuity with the past. This is very crucial. We live in a day of gimmicks. And people want to invent how God is, reinvent how God is worshipped. They want, they want to try something new. Uh, they have the brightest new ideas. And if you've lived more than seven years, seven years old, noted the toy that they got two years ago, which they were nuts about. This year, they don't even want to see it. Novelties get boring fast. So in addition to reestablishing worship as central, they built it on the base of a holy past heritage. We do that too. Thirdly was the Moadim. You can read this in Ezra chapter 3. I'm not making this up. It's right there, point, 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 in Ezra chapter 3. The very next thing it mentions is the Moadim, the holy occasions, the sacred feasts. They offered the sacrifices at that time. They want to restore the holy calendar. Number four, moolah, money. They give generously. Whenever the temple, when the, when the tabernacle was built in the wilderness, when the first temple was built, when the temple was uh, uh, in disrepair, when the second temple was built, you they give voluntarily. They don't have to be uh, shaken down in some way. This is a sign of, this is a sign of spiritual health. God, we serve a lavish, generous God. And one sign of spiritual health is a certain, and, uh, uh, and uh, giving is just one aspect of generosity. And that's, that was one of the signs that things were going pretty well. The people gave generously. That's another aspect of restored worship. It's a symptom. Moish Rosen, may he rest in peace, who was an extraordinarily pragmatic man. Am I right? Yes, extremely pragmatic. He felt that one of as if they started to give. Now, I kind of thought that he was being kind of mercenary about that, but he's right. He felt that, that what people do with their purse strings indicates what they really believe in. You know, if you really believe in the New York Yankees, which, and if, you, if, if there's any Red Sox fans here, please, would you leave quietly? 
Uh, if you really believe in the New York Yankees, you'll pay for one of those expensive tickets for, for a game at Yankees. Then music. We saw that music, uh, it's not kind of entertainment. It's not filler. It, it, it was intrinsic. It was songs of praise to God. 105 psalms mentioned music out of 150. 105 mentioned music explicitly either in the title or in the psalm itself. And all, I talked to you about the fact that one of the signs of the presence of the Spirit in the Older Testament, in the Newer Testament, is elevated speech. When the Spirit comes, our speech changes. Uh, speaking in tongues is only one of a number of ways in which the presence of the Spirit affects how we speak. Bible study on Luke in, Ber in Beverly Hills, Wednesday nights. Yes, when, 7 o'clock. Well, one of the things we've discovered when, in Luke, for 400 years the Spirit had not come back since the time of Malachi, and they didn't expect the Spirit to come back until the very end of days. And if you open up the book of Luke, all of a sudden the Spirit is popping up everywhere, and when the Spirit manifests to Zechariah, Mary, or to this guy, uh, uh, Simeon in the temple, who sees the infant Yeshua, or Hannah, the prophetess in the temple. All of them, when the Spirit manifests them, they break forth into prophetic speech. So, when the Spirit comes, he affects the way we speak. And singing is a form of elevated speech. Elevated speech. And we should sing praises to God. Be Holy Spirit. Uh, Zechariah said uh, to the people who needed to get moving and get the job done, he said, look, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. By the spirit of God, uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, this is going to get done uh, by God's spirit. You can't have renewal in a community. We could have a $3 million budget. A congregation is imaginable. Because apart from the activity of the Spirit of God, it's, it's only glitz. It's not substance. The mighty Holy Spirit. And finally today, I want to talk about the Mashiach. Please, please, uh, uh, Sean, thank you very much. Zechariah, who's one of the two prophets of the Restoration, he mentions the Mashiach four times in the book. And uh, I don't have time to go through that shit sometime, but not this time. Chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 12. Easy to remember. 3, 6, 9, 12. He mentions the Messiah. Uh, he talks about uh, the atoning Messiah. He talks about the Messiah as a king and a priest. He talks about the Messiah coming humble and riding on a donkey, the redemptive king coming on a donkey. Then he talks about the deliverance of Judah and Jerusalem through the returning of the Messiah when his feet will rest on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and they'll look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. That's from Zechariah, this prophet. And so we see, when you're talking about the renewal of worship, you talk about the Mashiach, not only about the Mashiach, but you must not live the Mashiach out, nor may we give him merely lip service. And he gets a lot of lip service. And that's a grief to me. It's a grief to God. So I like to think about No More Plastic Messiah. There's a song. You ever hear the song? I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got my plastic Jesus. 
on the dashboard of my car. That was an actual song. It was a song to make fun of how people have Jesus kind of bumper sticker, uh, bumper, bumper, bumper sticker religion. Well, no more plastic small. Some people say that I am a heretic. I want you to know this. A number of years ago, not a couple of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, a Messianic Jew who I know, who I used to work with, who's got a reputation for being good at denouncing people who are less orthodox than he, denounced me in the Messianic Times. And uh, here's uh, the basis of his denunciation. He was quoting from a paper I had given, a paper I gave at the Borough Park Symposium, and he took objection to this thought, which you see in the second paragraph on your slide. When describing the gospel, Stuart says, it is fundamentally a report we have received and which we pass on, an authoritative, empowered, but always fragmentary report concerning God's saving intervention in Messiah Yeshua. I had said in writing that when we talk about the gospel, we can only report part of it because we don't have a grasp of the whole thing. It's too big for us to be able to just explain the whole thing. And he says, that's ridiculous. He says, the gospel is easy. Uh, he says, a, a, a bar mitzvah child knows what the gospel is. And he denounced me as a heretic for that. Uh, does that bother me? Sometimes. Uh, but I know he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I'm going to demonstrate to you. Next slide, please. Uh, this is from uh, a fellow named Paul, who was another heretic. And this is the amplified version of the Bible, and this is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. This is what Paul says. For now, in this time of imperfection, we see in a mirror dimly a blurred reflection, a riddle, an infection comes. That's when we see him face to face. When we see reality face to face, now I know in part... Oh, sorry, let's back up. But then, when the time of perfection comes, we will see reality face to face. In other words, now we see in a blurred image, but at the end, we will see things as they really are. But right now, we see as through a mirror dimly. He goes on to say, now I know in part, just in fragments, another heretic. Now I know in part, just in fragments, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known by God. So, Paul agrees that the way in which we summarize the gospel, we must always recognize it's not adequate. It's only a part of the picture. That may sound like heresy to you, but it's not. Let's go to the next slide. This is something which, for those of you who were teenagers or more in the 1980s, You'll recognize this right away. This is what's known as the four spiritual laws. God, am I that old? Bill Bright. Bill Bright. Bill Bright was actually a candy merchant. And he founded Campus Crusade for Christ, and he developed the four spiritual laws. Distributed billions of these. And this became the standard way in which the gospel is understood to this day by many people in Christian subcultures. And here it is. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Man is sinful and separated from God, thus he cannot know and explain God's plan for his life. 
Messiah Yeshua is God's provision for men through whom man can know God's love and plan for his life. We must receive Yeshua the Messiah as Savior and Lord by personal invitation. Question, who is this about? Hmm? Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, it's about us. It's really about how we can get what we need. Yeshua is, but what does it say about Yeshua? Hmm? He's the Messiah, the Savior, and the Lord. He's the one through whom we are saved. But, but is, is, is that the gospel? Is that the whole gospel? The whole gospel is who Yeshua is from before the creation to the consummation. It's interesting when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you what, I, what was delivered to me, that Messiah died for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, that he appeared to many, he ascended to the right hand of God. He goes on and he describes, and at the end of the chapter, he talks about how the Messiah will, how everything will be made subject to him, and at the end, he will turn everything over to the Father. When Paul describes the gospel, it's the story of who Jesus is. And when you look at the, at the Apostles' Creed, which I suggest you look at, which is one of the earliest formulations, Yeshua believers, they really model it on 1 Corinthians 15. They tell the story. I believe with perfect faith. Uh, uh, no, that's, that's sorry. That's <laughs> back up. Uh, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Yeshua, the Messiah, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. It's about him. The good news is about who you should. But we have turned the gospel into a, me into a method of getting holy fire insurance. You know? And it's, it's a caricature. Let's go on to the next. Sean, thank you very much. Here is a guy named N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a famous New Testament scholar, one of the most brilliant in the world today. I don't agree with him on everything, but here's what he said. He was talking about a guy named John Stott. John Stott, who died a few years ago, was one of the most prominent scholars of the New Testament and of New Testament theology in the world. Once long ago, I heard John Stott say that some people had been talking about the irreducible minimum gospel. He dismissed such an idea. He says, who wants an irreducible minimum gospel, he asked. I want the full Biblical gospel. I don't want a bumper sticker religion. I don't want a, 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 a view of God that's reducible to a slogan. And I don't think God wants us to want that either. Next slide, please. So, here's my point. The good news that we're supposed to receive is not fundamentally about us and how we get saved. It's not fundamentally about us. It is fundamentally about Yeshua, what he has done to save the entire cosmos. So let's look for a minute of the good news about who Yeshua is, okay? The word became flesh as the promised seed of David. Begins, you know, all of reality. I want you to picture a horizontal line that goes from an eternal horizon that way to an eternal horizon that way. Uh, 
this uh, horizontal line. Above the line is that which is uncreated. Below the line is everything else. Below the line is the everything that has been created. Puppies, dogs, you know, um, Halle Berry, uh, Pinky Lee, Howdy Doody, Rinton Tin, chocolate bonbons, even even the, even the Red Sox uh, are all part of what's below the line. Here's the question. What is above the line? Okay, question number two. Where does Yeshua be? Where, where does Yeshua come from? That's a good term. Where does Yeshua come from? Is Yeshua come from below the line? Or does he come from above the line? Above the line. That's what incarnation is. The incarnation is that Yeshua, whose origin is above the line, became flesh and dwelt among us. He came below the line and then back above the line to be, uh, uh, to, to be with the Father at the Father's right hand. That's the incarnation. That's pretty big. He starts above the line. Everything else is below the line. So, the word became flesh as the promised seed of David. He dwelt among us, fully human, uniquely righteous in word and deed. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. Messiah was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Continue, please. Number six. After his suffering and resurrection, he appeared to many alive. Messiah ascended to enthronement on high. Roya made a very good point about a month ago, more or less. She reminded, she, 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 she gave a reminder that we all ought to be celebrating Ascension Day. In the circles in which we have traveled, don't even know what Ascension Day is. But the resurrection was great. But the important thing, but what is even more important is not only that he rose from the dead, but that he ascended to the Father's right hand, and from the Father's right hand, he poured forth the Spirit, which began the age to come, and, from the, and at the Father's right hand, he was enthroned over everything from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Number six, after his suffering and resurrection, he appeared to money. Number seven, he ascended to enthronement on high. He now reigns as king of the universe. Messiah will return as king and judge to rule uh, the world in righteousness, consummating God's purposes for Israel and the nations. That's important. Consummating God's purposes for Israel and the nations, not just for individuals. God made promises to Israel that are going to be kept. Yeshua is the executor of those promises. I teach extensively on that, but not today. Consummating God's promises to Israel and the nations with, with each entering into the fullness God has promised and prepared for them. Paul talks about it as the fullness of Israel and the fullness of the nations. Yeshua is the one through whom this is expedited. After all things, visible and invisible, to his Father, including himself, that God may be all in all. That's a mystery. It's a mystery, but that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's part of the gospel. It's not on the bumper sticker. Number 10. Through the gift of the Spirit, 
He offers a foretaste of the benefits of the age to come to all who serve and obey him. These benefits include and a foretaste of the powers of the age to come. We're talking about this in the Bible study I do on Wednesday night in Beverly Hills at 7 p.m. on Luke and Acts. We're talking about that we are now in a position, through the presence of the Spirit, we experience a preview of coming attractions of the age to come. We experience a foretaste of the age to come. We live between the already and the not yet. And all of this is part of the glimpse of who Yeshua is. In John chapter 7, Yeshua stands up at the, at the end of the feast called Hoshana Rabbah, uh, uh, which comes at the end of Sukkot. He stands up and he says, is any, If anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This he spoke of the Spirit. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Yeshua had not yet been glorified. Interesting. The Spirit was not yet poured out because Yeshua had not yet risen from the dead and been enthroned at the Father's right hand. But now he is. He has poured forth the Holy Spirit, of which most of us know almost nothing. But through the presence of the Spirit, we can experience a deep intimacy with God and also a foretaste of the powers of the age to come. That's in your Bible, and it's all in the work of Yeshua. Let's continue. We'll face the consequences of the shortness of resources they could otherwise possess and therefore find themselves outsiders to the promised age to come. People like to talk in in terms of heaven and hell. Uh, That's one one, one vocabulary to use. The other is that the age to come is a time of, of, um, of universal human fellowship in the presence of God in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And those who will not have this man to rule over them, over him, over them will be outsiders to that forever. And that's the greatest tragedy imaginable. Number 12, those who have lived in allegiance to the Messianic king are granted citizenship in the, citizenship in the age to come and will live in embodied immortality on a renewed earth free from the effects of the curse and an everlasting communion with the living God and all who worship and obey him. That is all. That's all what we mean by the good news of Yeshua. So when we, include, when we talk about the, the Messiah being one of the seven foundations of our worship, we're not just talking about paying him lip service and saying, nah, that's what you say. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we're not just saying, Yeshua died for me, so I'm going to heaven. That's we reduce it to this. It's, it's, it's much bigger than that. Let's go to the last slide, please. Next to the last. It is bigger than Christmas. By that, it's bigger than the fact that the Messiah came to earth as a little baby born in Bethlehem. Secondly, it's bigger than Good Friday. It's bigger than the idea that the Messiah died for our sins, according to the scripture. Number three, it is bigger than Easter, bigger than the resurrection. We tend to think of the resurrection as proof that Yeshua, that Yeshua accomplished the justification. 
Number four, it is bigger than Ascension Day. It's even bigger than Ascension Day that he's been ascended to the right hand of the Father. It is bigger than the day of Pentecost that he poured forth the Spirit. The good news of the Messiah is even bigger than that. All of this is included, but there's more. Number six, the good news is bigger than the second coming, when he's going to come and... It is bigger than the fulfillment of God's restoration of Israel and the nations. The good news is bigger than that. Last slide, and we are done. To which all God's people said hallelujah. How big is the good news? It is big enough to redeem the entire cosmos forever and ever. Read the, book of, read the cup, first couple of chapters of the book of Colossians, for example. Yeshua, the good news of Yeshua is that he is the one through whom the entire cosmos is reclaimed for the glory of God. Uh, all things visible and invisible. And our destination, by the way, is not to spend our time in heaven staring at God forever and ever, which is what's called uh, the, uh, the uh, eternal citizens of a new heavens and a new earth. Why is the resurrection especially important for us? Because Yeshua was raised from the dead in the same body in which he was uh, crucified. The Lord of the universe is right now a circumcised Jew. He took that body with him back to glory. And we too will spend bodied immortality. Uh, the resurrection is the down payment on your resurrection, on your resurrection on yours, on yours, on mine. It is, he's the prototype. And so our destiny, due to the work of the Messiah, is that we will be uh, destined to live in everlasting, embodied immortality, in full fellowship with God, and in communion with all of redeemed creation. That's pretty good. And that's not to be left out of what we call Messianic Jewish worship. Join me in a quick word of prayer. Like I said, Father, who is, an, who is adequate for these things? Um, I see through a glass darkly. We, we just have a, a, a few scribblings that we have found that describe the glory that is to follow. I pray, God, that you would deliver us from low expectations. Deliver us all from thinking that we know, because we don't know as we need to know. Help us to realize that what we don't know is more glorious than what we do. And may we all turn towards you, that you might teach us more of what we ought to know. And may we teach others what you show us in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.